are listening to The Depression Session at 99.1 FM Downtown Radio. Each week, we'll have a new guest tell the story of their depression. I'm your host, Laura Milkins, and thank you for joining us on The Depression Session. Just a note for my listeners, I want to make sure you understand that this is a show about depression, and some of the content can be triggering, so please take care of yourself if something on the show brings up difficult feelings, and seek professional help if you need it. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to The Depression Session. We're here at KTDT Downtown Radio. Today we have with us in the studio, Mari Herreras, managing editor of the Tucson Weekly, mother of a wonderful 14-year-old son, and writer of poetry. <laughs> we'll be with Mari in just a moment, but first I'd like to talk about New Year's resolutions. I, I decided this year to not do a resolution. I am not doing any big like this year I'm going to be a better person <laughs> this year I'm going to perfect my uh you know back back backhand or something which actually I don't even play tennis but <laughs> I I decided this year um to not do a resolution because I'm, I'm generally what I call a systems thinker I'm always thinking of ways that I could improve something and from the very mundane of like oh, I need something different to put my silverware in. This isn't working. You know, it might be more functional if I went to the container store and got a different thing that my silverware would fit <laughs> nicer into, right? Or, you know, I, I think like, oh, well, maybe um, if I walk more on my toes or if I, you know, like I put highlights in my hair. I mean, it just, it doesn't matter what I'm doing in my life or be a kinder person. Or be nicer to my mom. That one I, I don't mind thinking about how much being nicer to my mom. She comes to visit and we're both takes us about a week to adjust. We're like, meow, meow, meow. So anyway, I decided this year because I'm constantly looking for ways to improve my life that I just maybe let go of that and not focus on change and move more into some kind of contentment rather than making any sort of big resolution. And you know, it's funny because I'm resolving to stop resolving everything and evaluating everything. <laughs> and um, I also looked up where resolutions come from. I thought it'd be interesting to see, you know, I, I really didn't know why do we have New Year's resolutions? Why on the 1st of January? Why not the 3rd of March or the 14th of September? Why do we pick this date? It seemed sort of arbitrary. And I looked it up and originally it was by the Babylonians done mm -hmm. in March. And then it was changed to January by the Romans because January is the name for Janus, which is the two-faced God who looks backward into the old year and forward into the new. I thought that was sort of a fascinating, you know, iconic image of this two-faced Janus looking backward, looking forward. And, you know, it was also the patron protector of arches, gates, doors, doorways, endings, and beginnings. So it is a perfect, you know, idea to take this, this January, this Janus and make it the symbol for the new year and to start in, in January to look backward and to look forward and to assess our lives. And I think it's, it's I th really think it's kind of a beautiful tradition. And the Romans did do that. Um, what I saw online said that they actually were looking for to be a, a better person you know, to be a good person, that was often the resolution that people would make, which, you know, resonates with me. Um, that That's big on my list, like be a better person, be a kinder person, you know, be a better teacher, 
be a better friend, <laughs> be, a, be, be a better daughter, be a better sister, be a better girlfriend. And so I'm not saying that I, I don't want to make improvements in my life, but I don't want to make a big resolution. I don't want to make a big statement. There's something about making that statement of like, I'm going to, when I was, I think, nine or 12 or something, I am going to stop eating sugar for a year, which I did. I just stopped eating sugar for a year. I wasn't, it wasn't any kind of weight loss. I mean, you look up New Year's resolutions, there's like a bazillion weight loss and exercise and eat right. And we're all obsessed in our culture with, I don't know, being, being more fit, being more thin, being more strong. And, um, you know, that for, for me at that age, that was nothing I even thought about or had any interest in. I just knew that I ate a lot of sugar and it was something that controlled me and that, you know, I, I felt little controlled by it or helpless with it. So I thought, okay, I'll just not eat sugar. And, um, when I did my big walk across the country, my very best friend from fifth grade said to me, oh, hey, remember that time that you gave up sugar? She said, I knew when people kept asking me, I said, said I'm going to walk across the country with a live webcam and walk from my house to my mother's house from Tucson to Grand Rapids. And she, you know, back in Western Michigan, knew I was doing this and was telling people about it or was, you know, in the newspaper there too. And so people knew I was doing it. And she kept hearing people say, do you think she'll make it? And she kept saying, yes. Do you think she'll make it? Yes, of course. And I said, why were you so sure that I'd make it? She said, Laura, when we were kids and you said, I'm going to stop eating sugar for a year, you stopped for a year. And then one day I saw you eating a candy bar and I said, ha, I caught you because I kept trying to trick you and to seduce you into eating another candy and you wouldn't do it. And, and you just looked at me and said, oh, the year's up. Just like that, like it was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, it wasn't ever about other people. It was that thing of just wanting something that felt like it controlled me, that I, I felt that I was compelled to eat, to just take it out and see what that was like, and to kind of not have it be that thing that controlled me anymore. And um, I think I'm still, still that person, and that's my struggle a little bit with depression, is that it feels like this thing that I don't have any control over. And I spent at least the last year pushing, struggling, you know, saying, okay, I'm going to eat right. Okay, I'm going to exercise. All right, I'll make sure I go to social things because being with friends makes the difference. I need to do artwork because artwork is, you know, something that helps me with my depression. I'm going to, you know, rest properly, go to bed earlier, not drink alcohol. Maybe I should cut out the coffee. There's like this huge long list, you know, get, eat, you know, take vitamin D, start taking lots of vitamin D, uh, you know, out of doctor's order and all this stuff, right? And I didn't feel better. I felt completely still helpless to the depression. And I said to my boyfriend, Dan, I don't understand. I'm doing everything right and it's not helping. And he looked at me, he said, maybe we've spent too much of our lives doing everything right. Maybe we need to do mm -hmm. things wrong for a while. And I was so touched by that. Like, mm -hmm. right, I have spent so much of my life perfecting this. And, you know, like I said, I'm a system thinker. I'm like, it doesn't matter what job I'm at. Is there is there a better way of doing this? Could I rearrange these shelves so that my paperwork was more organized? Is there some way of making this system? It, it, it means like a, almost every job I've been in, I've 
promoted because I start like making improvements and making changes, whether or not that's really my job. And sometimes they give me a pay raise that goes with it. And sometimes they don't, but it doesn't matter. I want this perfecting of things and maybe that, that isn't helping. And so for the past like four months, five months, I've not been perfecting things. I've been sort of letting it be being content with being depressed and just saying, yes, you, you do have control here. I see that. Like I've done everything right and it hasn't fixed it. And maybe it's okay to do things wrong. Maybe that's part of the problem is maybe I need to stop fixing things and just let it be and be okay with it. So I hope you all have resolutions that feel right for you, or maybe no resolution at all. You know, there's this funny word, resolution. So maybe we just don't resolve anything. Or if there is something you want to work on, that it really suits you and it feels not like you're pushing something that's somebody else's agenda, but pushing something that feels like the right thing for you. So Happy New Year to you all. I hope you had a wonderful New Year's Eve. I did. We uh, colored in coloring books. <laughs> that was the beginning cool. of the evening. We have these, we printed out a bunch of mandalas and pictures and my friends came over and we colored. Um, and then we played silly games, like terrible games, like Cards Against Humanity, which is hilarious and kind mm, of inappropriate. Yeah. Have you played it? Yeah, Rafi is the <laughs> one that told me about it. And I played it at a fa- with family on Thanksgiving. And I was like, what in the world is this game? It was pretty cool. It's very funny and very inappropriate. And weirdly, my mother is really good at it. <laughs> but anyway, it's a little bit of a funny, raunchy game. And then we brought in the new year mostly, but almost everybody there was a non-drinker. And so we cheered in the new year with apple juice and bubbly cranberry juice. Nice. And yeah, it was really nice. I, I did I did have a bottle of champagne left over from a friend's wedding. And Wayne Martin Belger and I had a glass of champagne because we, we do occasionally have alcohol. So it was sweet. It was sweet and friendly and small. And it was something so silly about coloring coloring books for New Year's. Very nice. I love those coloring books. I think they're so cool. This whole idea that this whole thing that that's out there now, and you know, the fact that artist Danny Martin now has this coloring book out there that you can get over at Bookman's. I, I love that. You know that even he's gotten in on it, and we can color Tucson stuff, and the mandalas are really cool, or the pictures of animals drawn really fancifully, or it's it's a pretty cool thing. It makes a cool present yeah. for like us grown ups who right. have our inner artists. So today with us here, we have Mari Herreras. And again, I'll just say she's the managing editor of the Tucson Weekly, mother of a wonderful 14-year-old boy and writer of poetry, which I did not know about. Today. Yeah, yeah, it's my one of my secret vices and stuff. Well, it's a device, I'm not sure. So maybe it's a coping mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> that might be it, actually, more than anything else. Do you have anything special that you, you're you thinking about in the new year? You're Janice of looking back yeah. and looking forward? Well, you know, I think... Uh, I'm in wonderful relationship that we're constantly, we're not constantly, but we're, you know, always evaluating. And I think we're, I'm really looking forward in, in that regard. And then my son in school and, and also uh, Linda Ray and I, I don't know, uh, you know, Linda, she uh, is a freelancer for the weekly and I know her from bowling. bowling. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> she's a crazy bowler, but um, she's uh one of my best friends, and we have a plan in summer of 2017 to walk Hadrian's Wall in Scotland. 
And, uh, but we need to get into better shape. And we both of us have been in better shape at different times together, doing like Tumamak all the time. And, but this time we really, I mean, we've kind of, I think of this whole January 1st and resolution thing right now is kind of this more of a marker in time that said, okay, I'm going to, you know, like smoking, for instance, you know, I'm going to say I'm going to stop smoking January 1st, give it up. And, and so sometimes I think people just need that, like that date and, um, you know, it's as, it's as if it's any other date really, but sometimes you just need that date. And so, yeah, I'm taking this uh, date of January 1st as this marker that I need to get back on the road of getting back in shape and we're going to get so we can walk about 10 miles a day. <laughs> no, that's great because it, you know, what a, what a wonderful adventure that will be yeah. too with a good friend. Yeah. And when, when do, what type of weather do you want to do it in? Well, like we're going to do or? it in July yeah. of 2017, probably the second week of July. And we know we're going to need a whole week and, uh, you know, we'll probably uh, sign on with the Sherpa service that they have where they'll pick you up and then take you to a nearby town and B and B and you can, relax and have some dinner and stuff so we're gonna it's not gonna be too i wouldn't i was not gonna be suffering too much i think <laughs> a long walk can be really painful <laughs> i know you know these things we'll be talking to you soon to get some information shoes yeah. shoes are so hugely i mean it didn't matter because and taking a day off yeah you know, or oh, if yeah. you can, a half day. Oh, yeah. Because I thought, oh, I'll walk every day, every week. And it turns out my body was fine with that. My feet were not. Oh. By the seventh day, I was in pretty, it didn't matter how what inserts I had, it didn't matter what shoes I had right. on. Right. I've been eyeing these Merrells at Summit Hut. That <laughs> 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 I think I'm just going to break down and buy probably next month. And, and they're just wonderful looking, and they look like my feet would be very happy in them. And, you know, and I haven't really ever done that where I've just broken down and just bought a really good pair of hiking shoes or walking shoes. It's so but, wonderful to have a good pair of shoes. Yeah. It sounds kind of dorky, but it is. <laughs> it sounds like something our mother would tell us, right? Make sure you have clean underwear on and a good pair of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the ch- the chonies uh, uh, discussion, you know, you don't want to go in the hospital with the dirty chonies. <laughs> I'll just start with, Mary. tell us the story of your depression. All right. Um, well, thanks for having me on, and um, and I think thanks for the show. It's been interesting preparing for it because you get to hear other people's stories and understand, you know, everybody's depression is different, right? Um, even though there's some underlying common things that we all experience together. I think for me, you know, I've I think of oh I think for what I recognize now is that I've always struggled with depression, but in my family, it was never really discussed, even though I now see that other people certainly struggle with, struggled with it as well, that, um, but didn't either do anything about it or, you know, shrugged it off or really suffered a great deal in different ways. And as a kid who was really sensitive and, um, really felt things um, a little more strongly maybe than other people did or um, but also very sensitive to other people's feelings around me um, and then you know becoming a writer um, and identifying that at, as, at an early age you know I, I guess I just thought that um, there was this natural part of it because well aren't all artists and all writers uh, kind of a little emotionally um, 
difficult, maybe is a good word to put, or that we face those difficulties. And, and I used to use it, or I think I, I think I thought I used it uh, in my work as a writer, um, especially you know creative writing, uh, the po- poetry, nonfiction. I mean, not real fiction. Um, and I think that those things made me think that uh, this this was how you one used it as an as an artist, and then you start to get older and you grow up in a sense. You take on other responsibilities besides just taking care of yourself and your and your work. And for me, that um, came in becoming a mom. Um, I I think as a journalist. Um, you know, I, I'll say this kind of as a generalization. I mean, we, we get generalized all the time, even though it's not necessarily fair either. But it's an odd group of people, and we tend to be isolating. We tend to stick amongst ourselves or with people that uh, we that we don't write about necessarily all the time. So I always tended to hang out with, with artists, you know, because I wasn't, I'm not an art writer, you know, um, and and those were people that I liked and would connect could connect with, or another journalist. Although usually by the end of the day we're kind of sick of each other. So, <laughs> but I think those are things that my fellow journalists kind of struggle with in some capacity too. But we don't talk about it. I mean, really, this is unusual, you know, because you don't really want to be labeled in some way that can be. Um, they can be, uh, they can jeopardize how people see you in a community or your work. Or, um, and I think only recently, really for myself, have I started really talking about it or, you know, not making it a big deal. And again, I think motherhood plays a, a key role in that. I mean, you know, not everyone's a mom, you know, and I recognize that. And, and, but for me, it's, it, it was such a big, huge, life changing um, events that it made me realize that, um, you know, I've, I'm bigger than myself, you know? And so I believe what happened is that, uh, recognizing this sensitivity, this, uh, overcoming of emotion or however I was earlier describing it, this, the sadness and the sadness that I struggle with, uh, even now, um, that I really had to get better control of it as I got older and my son got older. So for me, it's a family story in some ways too, because being open with it within the within the circle of family, I think, has been important as well. Because I want my son to to I guess to know it's it's not that it can be discussed, you know. So. For me, I think the, you know, my son was diagnosed at an early age with Asperger's syndrome and it's a, he was on the spectrum of autism and it was, you know, in the early, his early years, it was very difficult, very difficult. And my ex-husband and I really had terrible coping skills <laughs> of dealing with this high stress situation and, um, and most likely that's why we're exes now, but we're good parents and we are good friends now. And to me, that's what counts the most. But I think in the middle of it, in the throes of it, it was really stressful and it was difficult. And at the same time, I think at the height of it, I was, I got, came down back, we came home, returned home from uh, Washington State. I've been living there, got the job at the weekly and really immersed myself as staff when I was staff writer writing really difficult stories, 
finding myself in the middle of, you know, crazy storms, you know, the ethnic studies uh, debate and earlier things, and just, you know, really pushing myself, um, and had a really great editor at the time, that uh, Jimmy Bogle, who really pushed me too, and then I, but at the same time, my personal life was absolutely falling apart, and I was really questioning myself, so it's so much on my plate. And finally, I just broke down. You know, I finally, I just like, can I get out of bed? Um, can I, um, can I just be a person who <laughs> um, can have a, a normal conversation with someone? I found myself just being so overcome with uh, feeling feeling judged. I mean, I think that's you go from being this like overly sensitive person um, who finds coping skills in drinking and writing and, and great bad other great bad habits but then in this situation it's like how can I get by without you know feeling judged as a parent every day and and especially when it's like the most important thing to you um, so it just became really overwhelming for me and I knew I needed to do more than just seek out a therapist I knew that I needed to do to just do more, and I needed to, to make a change. And so I did something that I know not everybody's comfortable with, but I went to a nurse practitioner, psychiatric nurse practitioner, and we started me off on Lexapro. And it was a it was a big thing for me. Not only that, though, but it's beyond medication at the time. It was a big thing just recognizing that this is what I have. See, I never really gave it a name before. I never said, I suffer from this, or this is a struggle for me, or this is something. And, and really, even recent, until recently, still, you know, it's still something that I would never, it would take me a long time to tell somebody that I would grow close to that this is something for me that I deal with, you know. But the Lexapro thing, for me, and, and yes, recognizing that not everybody does well with medications, or some people have to try a couple before they can figure out what works, and some people figure out other things to do. But at that moment in time, I had not discovered Tumamak Hill. I had stopped painting. I wasn't really writing as much poetry. I, I mean, everything that I used to cope in positive ways was was not there for me at the time, and I was just so overwhelmed. Um, and it helped. I mean, it really did help me. And the thing I liked about it was the discussion went this way with my psychiatric nurse practitioner person was, you know, this is a, a drug that will help you with this, and it's not long-term. You will taper it off at a certain point that you feel comfortable. And, yes, I will have you go see a therapist at the same time simultaneously. So all of that started happening at the same time, and... And it, it really did ease the ease what I was experiencing at the time. I could finally feel like I could think clearly. My job wasn't as overwhelming. I felt like I could tackle on the other things that were going on with with parenting and school. And um, and you know the unfortunate. I mean, again, you could, one can look at it and say, well, that's unfortunate that what happened next. But I think for me, what happened next was was things like taking better care of myself, and then getting ultimately getting a divorce. And um, it, it wasn't that Lexapro opened my eyes and that all of a sudden, you know, it was more more of what was going on was that I needed to further continue to make changes in my life that I'd been avoiding making, and then 
I was able to finally make those changes. Um, and eventually I, what I did, I took Lexapro for about a year and I did taper off when I felt like I was more confident. And then I continued to make those changes that I talk about. Talk about. I and I discover things like Tumamak, you know, or and getting back to hiking, which you know, in my college days and early twenties was a really important thing for me. Um, I I recognize now that if I don't do something like that as often as often as possible, it's it isn't good for me. I need that activity. I need those endorphins running through my body and making me feel centered. I need um, to, you know, just be, I don't know, not necessarily more balanced, but recognize that there's other things that make me happy, like painting, like writing poetry, you know, making art or, or you know, writing. Those are things that help our life-saving in many ways. I don't think we always recognize that. And for me, that's been a big it's been a big deal. And so getting back to that beyond just the stories I write for work. And um, it's been, and having those important conversations with Rafi, you know, and saying to him, you know, this is something that probably runs in the family, dude. And, you know, let's always keep a good communication and talk about this. And, and you're 14 is a rotten age. <laughs> it, freshman in high school, you remember how terrible it was, man? I just... I am a fearful and really sensitive to that and also sensitive to the fact that, you know, he's now a product of a divorced family and sharing two households. He's an amazing kid the way he handles it so gracefully and loving both of his parents equally and just being, you know, oh, you know, just, I'm just, I'm in awe of him, but I know that sometimes, even though life seems crappy as a 14-year-old, it gets more demanding when you're in your late 20s and you're hit by those things that hit you at the core, you know. And he's a sensitive kid, too. And, but he definitely has a better disposition in life than, than I think I did as a kid, and I'm, I'm a little more positive in that regard. But one of the things I think that came out of my my... One of the benefits that came, I think, out of uh, learning about Lexapro, going on a medication, is that, you know, at one point, Rocky had to go on something as well, uh, because of, you know, Asperger's um, is a disease that uh, can leave you with really crippling anxiety at different times, and he was going through a really bad experience from school, and I needed to get him back into school the next year, feeling more confident, and because of my experience that was positive with that, we knew that he could have a positive experience too, because usually there's a genetic component there. And I also wasn't feeling so scared and worried. Like we'd had past experiences with medications that, and we had taken him completely off of them. But we did this for a brief moment during the summer, tapered off in October as he you know, was in Houston school and feeling better, and that was it. And we've never gone back on medications since then. But I think it was one of those things that uh, I learned in terms of not necessarily being completely overwhelmingly negative about medications, that it can be a band-aid that you need to just get you through that moment and uh, offer some clarity that sometimes we just can't get when you're immersed in, in overwhelmed with depression. You just you need something. and so, yeah, taking, I think, your, your thing on resolutions is such an important thing in the sense that, you know, if you need that, 
reminder to take better care of yourself and certainly afford yourself this opportunity right now to do that. But you need to, you know, get up to Namak or get outdoors more. I mean, we're in, we're in paradise in that, in that sense. Bring your community together as often as you can over New Year's Eve, you know, Mandela coloring books or like what I did, you know, uh, going to uh, my, what I consider my made family, you know, my created family, um, having dinner and talking and um, smoking that last cigarette before <laughs> before midnight. Um, but I think those things are important and, and certainly facing depression, becoming, you know, open about it like this is a good thing too. You know, we, we all... We can all be functioning people, and sometimes people think we're we're more functioning than others, you know, or that we're superhuman. And then, boy, no, that's just not that's not the case. And uh, I don't want to ever lose my sensitivity to people and my writing, but but certainly facing depression and taking medication at different times. I one thing I learned is that it didn't really affect that, um, and I was worried that it would. Wow. Thank you so much for your story. And uh, I just want to thank everybody for listening today. I really enjoyed your story, especially the connection between like motherhood and being aware of depression and just taking care of yourself so you can help take care of your son and like understanding what he's going through. So we're out of time, folks. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Again, I want to mention that if you found some of the content of today's show triggering, please seek professional help. And worst case scenario, call 911 if you're feeling like you might hurt yourself or others. I'm not a licensed therapist, and this show and the station are not endorsing any remedies or products. The purpose of this show is to destigmatize depression through storytelling. You can find a link to mental health services on downtownradio.org on the About KTDT page. You've been listening to The Depression Session on Downtown Radio with music by Septa Helix. Find us on Facebook at The Depression Session Podcast. Thank you.